So this passage uh, picks up where James kind of left off, and uh, it's kind of near the end of chapter 4. Now, when James wrote his uh, letter back then, there were no chapters and verses, but this is kind of a good end point to what we've been talking about for the last three, four weeks. We've been talking about um, our actions and how our actions and uh, you know should match our words. So he started talking to us, telling us about how our words are very important, and then started down the road of your actions are also very important, and these two things should be married together, that if you really are a Christian, you don't just talk about it and not do anything. You don't just do stuff and not talk about it. These two things have to go together. Okay, and so sometimes we were uncomfortable looking at our own sin and seeing where we stand uh, in our relationship with God and how we're operating. He's kind of calling all that stuff out, and today is no different. I feel like as we read this passage, this could have been written literally today. Like, it would work the same today as it did a couple thousand years ago when it was written. That, in fact, we have the same problems, we have the same issues, that when James is talking about something then that was dealing you know, with some stuff that was happening in the church then, it's still something that we deal with all the time. I think all of us are in a place where we're you know, thinking about the future, making plans, potentially having some anxiety over the future, or the opposite end of the spectrum, maybe we have some arrogance over what we think is going to happen. Um, I, working with students for like the past 12 to 15 years here, I've watched, um, there seems to be a higher level or a ratcheting up of uh, just this performance thing that happens with, with youth. And essentially, what I, what I would always find in a, a lot of students' lives is like they would either come to me in like 6th or 7th grade like anxious about the future, um, and it would be stuff that you just as an adult would want to like laugh about, right? It's like, you know, it'd be like, a, well, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm, you know, doing well enough in my math class. And you know what that could do, right? That could keep me from getting into the right college. And then that could keep me from meeting the right person. And that could keep me from having the right job. And then I might, I'm potentially just like one step away from being homeless and destitute and living on my own and being alone. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> take a second. Let's just relax for a minute. We could get you a tutor. Like, <laughs> like calm down, like, right? Or, you know, even if you, like, now talk to, like, little kids, like, you'll hear stuff out of, like, my seven-year-old. Like, what am I going to do someday? Like, what, what is the thing that I'm going to, I'm like, you got time to figure, let's, how about we focus on Pokemon again for a minute? Like, let's forget about where things are going. And this doesn't get better. It gets worse. Like, we need to know the end wherever we are in life. So if you're a teenager, you're thinking about the next step, the next step, the next step. If you're in college, you're stressing out over getting finished, and you're like, I'm entering this workforce. Will I even find a job? Is there anyone who loves me? Like, right? Then you, you get to that point. You're like, should we have kids? Should we bring kids into this world? Like, are we ready for this? I don't know. And then you keep moving down the line. Whatever it is, wherever, whatever stage of life that you're in, right? There's anxiety about the future, okay? And you might make a plan and think that you have it all figured out, right? But God essentially, in this passage, James is telling us, like, you don't. You don't have it figured out. And, by the way, you don't need to have it figured out. That, in fact, we can trust in God, and we can basically give him our plans, and he'll get a good chuckle out of whatever we came up with, and then he'll hand them back to us, and they'll be better. Right? I did talk to somebody the other day. You know, it's, it's weird being in, in ministry. Like, they're, you know, like, so now I'm essentially, it's, it's weird, I'm, like, self-employed, so... Like, I was talking to somebody, and they were like, um, yeah, we have this figured out. We work for the government, right? So there's two people married to each other. They both have government jobs. They're like, we know exactly what we're going to get paid for the rest of our lives if we keep these two jobs. And I can tell you the day that I will retire based on what our pay scale will be as we move forward in these positions. 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, um, I think I saved some money last year in my 401k. I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> when I have that conversation with him. Um, you guys are all judging me now. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but James says, like, now listen, right? Verse 13. Now listen. He's like, come on. Like, pull the other one. Like, let's just stop for a second. Relax. Like, he's basically saying, I don't, I'm not going down this road with you. Like, it's a ridiculous thing to say what I'm about to show you. So he says, now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business, we'll make money. What? Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And like, I want to say that there's probably a tension right now, and potentially if you're married, there's a tension between the two of you, um, because generally, or this has just been my anecdotal evidence, that a lot of times there are people married where one of them is a planner, and the other one really isn't much of a planner, there's so many of you smiling right now and nudging the person next to you, right? Uh, if you're single, you win right now. I'm just throwing that out there, right? Because you're just like, I can be a planner or not a planner. There's no conflict in my marriage. I don't have a marriage. This is great. I can do whatever it is that God's calling me to do. Um, and I think there's a tension between different personalities. Some people love to plan. Other people don't. Uh, even for me, I'm not much of a planner. Uh, many of you are like, yeah, we know that. Um, like, for instance, if I go on vacation uh, with my family, like, I am in the moment, and I want to see where this is going to go. Like, so we have a general sketch of what we're going to do on, on a certain day, and we go, and we just kind of feel it out, right? So maybe we'll go do this, or maybe we'll go do that, or we'll move on to the next thing, and we're kind of open to wherever things are going. I kind of like that feel when you're on vacation, you're relaxing. But, for instance, when I was a youth pastor, and I would take, um, you know, it took, like, 35 people to Albania, we planned the whole thing. Every single moment of the entire time, we had to figure out how we were going to eat next, what was the next step we were going to do, how do we keep people busy. So, like, there are different moments for times where we need plans and times where we don't need plans, times when it's stupid to not have a plan, times when you can be a little more flexible, right? And so some of us on the planner end of it probably need to find a little bit more flexibility. Some of us on the non-planner end of it need to surround ourselves with people who make plans and drive us crazy. Um, that's the... The, the way that we live, but I want you to know that plans aren't necessarily a bad thing. Now, James is going to talk about specific kinds of things that go with, you know, their humility or their arrogance, right? If you're, you're on one side or the other, you're either arrogant about what you're doing or, you know, you don't have a, a good idea of what's happening, but I want you to know that God is a planner, right? Those of you who are planners are like, yes, God's a planner. He had a plan before time even began of what he was going to do. He took into account all of the actions that we were going to take on in this world, that we were going to choose, and he still uses everything that happens to go towards the end that he wants to see happen. Right? Christ, you can go back into the Old Testament and you can see the through line through the Old Testament where Jesus is coming and he's preparing people for Christ, and then we see the plan of Christ, see its full fruition in Christ going to the cross and giving up his life and then being raised into heaven. And there's a plan for the future, right? If we read ahead in Revelation, we see that we win at the end. That Christ is the one who has all power and all authority, and he's the one that's held up at the end. So God is a planner. He has a plan. But sometimes we have a plan, and God has a plan, and that's where we potentially have some conflict. Sometimes, right, it's, it's one thing to nudge the person next to you and to know that one of you is a planner and one of you is not, and you have different plans and that they're going to conflict. It's a whole other thing to nudge up against God and say, I have a plan, and then he has one, and to feel that tension. 
That's really what James is getting at here. He's like, those of you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business, we'll make money. He's like, why? You don't even know what will happen, happen tomorrow. Like, we truly don't know what will happen tomorrow. Now, I was just thinking about this. So he references, like, people who plan out a year, okay? I know a lot of you guys, you're planned out for much further than that, right? And I want you to just stop and think about what can change in a year, right? One year ago, this week, it's a weird time for me to be preaching this sermon. One year ago, this week, me and Marty were conflicted. We were on our own, praying through the idea of what God was calling us to next, we maybe had shared a little bit with our small group. That was it. And essentially the small group prayer was like, hey guys, we don't really know what God's calling us to do, so could you pray for us? Like, we were conflicted and we didn't know what God was calling us to do. In one year, right, here we are. A lot. <laughs> that was Marty. <laughs> um, in one year, Right? We went from two conflicted people listening to God to a whole church being birthed, and now here we are. You just think about what could change in your life in a year, right? In a, in a year from now, everything could be different, right? In a year from now, you could have a new addition to your family. In a year from now, you could have somebody missing from your, from your family. Right? In a year from now, the economy could collapse, and all of us could be pin, pinching our pennies. Well, it could be the opposite. A year from now, the, everything could be booming and things could be going crazy. That's not, this is not a political statement, by the way. I'm just saying, this, these things happen, right? Uh, a year from now, maybe you have a different job and a completely different plan than you have right now. Right? And a year from now, maybe you have a different relationship than you have right now. Maybe things are different between you and whoever's closest to you. I think if we get to a point where we're starting to make our own plans and our own ideas, that we just need to be able to hold them with enough humility to say, everything can change literally tomorrow. Literally tomorrow, I can go from everything being fine to getting a diagnosis that's going to rock my world. Or literally tomorrow, I can go from everything being one way to coming into a huge inheritance. Or maybe tomorrow, I can go from our house is only this many people, but you know what? Something happens with a family member, and I invite them in to come stay at our home for the year. Like, everything can change the next day. And when we think we're in control, when we think we're the ones that are planning things out, that's where we start to have some tension. In fact, God has called us, really, to live more in the flow of his spirit. And you say, like, but he wants us to prosper, right? He wants us to be successful. Like, I know Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord plans to prosper you. Like, these are, I know there's a promise in the Bible that God wants me to prosper. Right? Some of you guys probably have that tattooed somewhere. Right? Jeremiah 29, 11. Yeah. Do, do, do you, have you ever thought about what, what that verse actually means and where it comes from? It's like one of the most misquoted things in the entire Bible. Jeremiah 29, 11. It's true that God has a plan for you and a hope and a future and he wants you to prosper but when we think about prosper, what do we think about? We think about success in the eyes of the world. So we think, hey, things are going great. Everybody's healthy. We got money in the bank, right? We know kind of where we're going. This is good. This is prosper in our, in our world, in our economy, and what's around us. Those are the things that would cause us to be feeling like we are prospering. Do, do, you, do you know that the, the actual verse, Jeremiah 29, comes from the context 
of God who puts his people into exile. They essentially watch another country come into their own and smash everything and burn the city to the ground. And then they kill off a whole bunch of people and take some, a remnant of people in exile to a new land. Literally, the Jews are marched out of their uh, homeland in chains on their way to Babylon. So Jeremiah is prophesying to a group of people who are like, had basically the worst possible year you could have ever had. Essentially watched everything they own get destroyed, watched everything they love be taken away from them, and watched all the people in their life potentially be gone or, or whatever, and then they're in chains walking on their way to Babylon. When they arrive there, there are people inside of the Jews, inside of their community saying, oh, you know, it's okay, God's got a plan for us, he's going to do something. It's going to be amazing. Wait till we see the miracle that he's going to bring about in freeing us from this captivity that we're in. Jeremiah says this in uh, Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to, to Babylon. So he sends this to all the people who are still in charge of the remnant of Israel that is left in Babylon that's been basically taken away from their homeland and lost everything that they had. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build your houses and settle down. I'm not coming to get you out of this. Okay? He says, so build your houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry. Have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. In other words, you, be successful in where I've called you to and where I've put you. Even though this is a terrible situation, one that you definitely wouldn't have wanted, I want you to take this time to settle down and build roots in this place and to, to flourish. He says, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile, which is the craziest thing that you've ever heard in that situation. I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the place that God has brought you into. Out of your homeland, out, away from all of your stuff, of all the things that you love, I want you to look for peace and prosperity and bless the place that you've been put. He says, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage they, sorry, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them to you, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. The people who heard that verse, they didn't tattoo it on their arms. They weren't like, God wants to prosper me. They were like, we're going to be here for a whole generation. He's called us to prosper in the place that he's brought us to, which is not the place that we want to be. This was not my plan. This is not what I wanted. And yet God has called them to prosper in that place. And in fact, when they heard this verse, it gave them faith that God would eventually bring about justice in their lives and restore them. But everyone who heard this verse knew it wasn't going to be them. So maybe... Jeremiah is saying that we should be healthy and rich and that God wants to give us those things. Or maybe Jeremiah is, is saying 
that God, for instance, is faithful and sometimes his plan doesn't meet yours and he still calls you to be faithful during those times where you're in a place where you didn't expect to be or want to be. And in fact, your whole life can change tomorrow. It can look completely different in a year and yet there's still an opportunity for you to be faithful in whatever season that you find yourself in. That God is faithful. He does have a plan for you. He does want you to prosper. He does want to see good things happen in your life. But it's not material wealth and health and prosperity the way that our culture around us sees it. There are a lot of churches out there that are very full, and they are preaching that gospel. That God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. Not necessarily true. Not exactly what God always calls us to. Now, we do see in James that God wants to give us good gifts. He does tell us to pray for healing. He does say that when you have needs, come to me and I will fill those needs. But he doesn't want us, right, to look at him and say, this is a God who serves me, who's here to make sure that I'm healthy and I'm wealthy and that I have everything I need. In fact, that's our culture telling us what success looks like and what prosperity is. And in fact, if you go back and you look at Jesus, you look at Paul, you look at James here, I, the church history says that James, at the end of his life, was taken up on top of the um, temple and that they threw him off the temple to kill him and that he was such a tough dude that he survived the fall and so they had to stone him to actually kill him. That's prosper. that's health and wealth. Nope. Jesus' life ends on a cross. Paul says, uh, hey guys, you know, this is my other favorite one that gets completely misused. Philippians 4.13, you right? Anyone, right? Like Philippians uh, 4.13, um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? When Paul writes that, he's in prison. He's been beaten multiple times in many ways. He's gone back and forth in and out of prison. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stranded. He's been basically run out of town by every single person who's met him. He's got himself like sort of stoned, like stoned enough to be really in pain, but not to quite die. I mean, he says, I can do all things through Christ who give me strength. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's meant to, you know, go up on the wall in our house, you know, or maybe like that's really uh, not anything that we're dealing with in our lives. Maybe that's a type of uh, perseverance that Paul is saying is completely different than even what we're going through, Right? God does not call us to be prosperous in the eyes of the culture around us or in the eyes of the world around us. He calls us to be faithful in the place that God has put us, no matter where that place is, whether we find ourselves in exile or whether we find ourselves having everything we need. He's calling us to be faithful to him, and he's saying he'll be faithful to us. And in fact, he does want to do things in our lives, and he does have a plan for us, and he does love us, but it doesn't always look the way that we think it should look. That's what James is getting at. And he's like, You are so arrogant if you think you know what's going to happen even tomorrow. You don't. You don't know what your life will look like. So go ahead and make your plans, but hold them loosely and hand them back over to Christ. So he goes on. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. All right, if we think about the entire timeline of history and what God has done from the very beginning, from let there be light to the very end where it's like, hey, we're all happy and in heaven together. Right? This entire timeline of human history that God has created. Now, that's outside of the timeline of God who was not created. Right? So then just don't think about that too long because your head will literally just explode and things will melt inside of your brain. Right? But the timeline of human history from let there be light 
to when we are all together in heaven someday for, for the foreseeable future forever, right? That there's this huge timeline of human history and we are both very significant and very insignificant. Right? There's, a, there's a chance for you to do something that is very significant in the very limited amount of time that you get on that timeline. But there's also this idea that you are a very insignificant piece of what is actually happening throughout the history of the world. Right? If this timeline is this huge little thing that we are just this little speck on the timeline. And we have a chance to do something with our life where we invest in things that are eternal or we invest in things that are not eternal. Right? We can invest in our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own wealth, our own stuff, and that's great. And so we live a really great life for a very, very short amount of time, and we essentially make an insignificant difference in the timeline. Or we get a chance to invest what we have, what we've been given, what God is doing in our life, into something that becomes an eternal investment, and we can have a very significant place in the timeline. Right? Look at verse 15. It says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will, first of all, we will live, and then we will do this or that. So there's this tension between whether we're investing what we have into God's plan, his will, his kingdom, or into ourselves, our own comfort, our own desires, our own passions, which, by the way, James has been talking against our passions, our desires, the things that we uh, have inside of us. He's saying, don't listen to those, question those, fight that stuff. I we live in a world now that tells you, be true to who you are, listen to the thoughts that you have, lean into the way that you feel, right? Give in to the things that are your passions, you know, serve the desires that you have. You've only got a short amount of time in this world. YOLO, you only live once. That's my reference from 2005, right? YOLO. And, and James is saying like the exact opposite, to question your feelings. Question your passions, your desires, question them, and then bring them under the authority of Christ's will. Like, why should we be different than Jesus? In the garden before Jesus went to the cross, he submitted his will to God in that moment. And God says to us, we get a chance to do the exact same thing every single day. Are you going to submit your will to God? Are you going to question how you feel, who you think you are, what your passions are, what your desires are? And you're going to turn those things over to God and allow him to redefine who you are on a daily basis and use you for an eternal significance, right? For eternal significance. We often um, want to turn over our past to God, but we're not willing to give him our present or our future. We say, God, can you forgive me for all the things in my past that I've done, but I'm not exactly ready for you to be using me in this moment right now and into the future, there's a tension there between listening to him and doing what he's asked us to do and handing over our future to him. We're totally willing to receive forgiveness. We're totally willing to say, hey, can you make that all good? We're not willing to do what he's calling us to do in that moment. We need to remember that we have a chance every moment to represent Jesus, to re-present Jesus every moment. You think you're just out doing some errands. You don't realize that God's will for you is to connect with that person in front of you and to represent Jesus to them that day. You think you're just going to work. You don't realize that God's will for you is to be someone who represents Jesus in your workplace. You think that you're just having family over from out of town. You think this is just going to be a good time. God's will for you is to represent Jesus in that moment. When we start to live 
in the present and in the future, giving that over to Christ, he starts to use us to do crazy things. He starts to use us to make a difference for his kingdom. The question is, what will we invest in? What will we invest in? How will we give? What will we, what will we allow God to do in our lives if we allow him to have our present and our future? Look at what Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 6. By the way, all of James is essentially a commentary on uh, Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. So you can actually connect the dots from places where James is talking about something back to something Jesus talked about. In reality, he's giving us a commentary on what Christ talked about on the Sermon on the Mount. These two things actually go together. Um, so you could go back and reread both of these and see the similarities, right? But he says, this is what Jesus says. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. In other words, don't invest your life into things that are temporary, that serve your own passions, your own desires, the things that you think are important, right? But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, if you start to invest your time, your talents, you know, your life, what God has given you into God's kingdom, into a future that is significant, into something that lasts forever, right? He says, that is when we start to find uh, what God is wanting to do and calling us to in his life, in our lives. And so he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, you start to invest what you have into God's kingdom, and your heart sort of follows along after it. You may not feel like you want to give your present and your future to Christ, but when we start to invest what we have into those things, then we start to do that and see that happen. And think about the language we use, right? Uh, again, as a youth pastor, this is just language that just gets thrown around sometimes. It's just terrible theology, right? I invited Jesus into my life. I, I get what you're saying. But think about what you just said. I invited Jesus into my life. Jesus doesn't want to just be a part of your life. He wants you to submit to him and to take on his life. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Do what I do. Be who I've called you to be. Fully submit to me, right? In Romans, it tells us that in order to be saved, right, that we have to believe that Christ went to the cross and died for our sins, and that we have to, you know, with our mouth, declare that he is Lord. And I think we get that Lord part mix, mixed up, right? We, this is not tack Jesus onto the life that you are already leading, the one that you have planned out, the one you think that you're going to lead. This is submit, make him Lord, put him in charge of everything, take on what he has for you, become part of the world and the kingdom that he is creating. Allow yourself to be used completely by him. We don't invite Jesus into our lives. We take on Jesus' life. Verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And this is completely stands against the culture that we live in. In fact, I think most of us would see success and we would see people who have success and they would be boasting about it in a way that is uh, right in your face, that it would be expected, that it would be part of the culture that we live in, that if you're successful, that you get a chance to go ahead and just, I mean, I, don't, I watch parts of the, I can't even get through the Oscars, man. It's like this, I know some of you guys have parties over it and stuff. I'm not judging you. Go for it. Like, have a great time. But all I see is a bunch of super successful rich people just blowing their own horn and saying, look how great we are. 
We're amazing. All of you guys at home stink. Look at us. We're beautiful. We're fabulous. Let's shine the light on ourselves. Let's all get up and give speeches about things that we, you know, whatever our pet thing is. And we're essentially doing it all. It's all vanity. The whole thing is just like, I can't even handle it. I think I used to watch it and think, by the way, they don't pick anything anybody watches. I don't know. What were the movies they actually choose? Like, sorry, I'm off my, my sofa. <laughs> How twisted is our culture, man? We define ourselves and we get our worth from our success. It's so messed up. It's so backwards. We cannot let that creep into the church. Like, the church should be the place where we're all basically saying we are trying to out humble each other. We're trying to out-submit to Christ. Like, that's what a, a marriage looks like. That's what a community should look like. That's how God designed us, right? To be continually letting God do what he wants to do in our lives and submitting ourselves to his will and finding the humility necessary to not boast about the things that we think are so great in our lives, but to come under his and be submitted to his will. You get a chance every day to make that decision. And it's, it's, it's hard, right? Like, I, I, even I have problems. I'm, by the way, I'm probably the worst one. <laughs> like, I was at the bank the other day, and there was a, something we were trying to figure out. It was not a huge deal, but I had gone to the bank to try to fix something, and I couldn't get it fixed. And then our treasurer had gone to the bank to fix something and couldn't get it fixed. And then we both went to the bank to try to get this thing fixed because they told us we had to come back together to get this thing fixed. And then they told us we had to come back and see another guy about getting this thing fixed. And I was like, ready to just blow my top. I was like, this is the fourth time I've been back here. I don't know if you know this, but I don't really have time, you know, to just be coming down here every single day trying to fix this really stupid thing that should be really simple to get fixed. And then it was like, oh, I'm wearing a Pursuit Community Church hat. (laughs) Oh, and this is a person sitting across the desk from me who is a soul that God loves, that he has a plan for, that he wants to see actually prosper in a real way. And I'm like, could you just put aside your arrogance and your self-importance, and could you focus on the relationship in this moment, not be so upset? Every time it snows, we go out on the road, and there's just a bunch of idiots flying around, driving like morons. Sorry, kids, don't say that. Um, And we think, like, they're inconveniencing us, getting in our way. Are you kidding me? Like, let's just stop for a second and have the perspective that God has, right? There's a chance for us every single day and every moment that we're in to represent him in the situation that he's put us in. We're called to stop, to give up our agenda, our will, and to focus on that person who's in front of us because that is where the eternal significant issue is. Does this person know Christ? Will they be in heaven with him for eternity? Can I invest this moment in this person to invest in an eternal thing instead of serving myself, my own arrogance, my own pride, my own anger, my own junk? Are we going to be able to put it aside in very large ways where we give up our future that we think we have for God's and in very small ways where we put aside our impatience and our frustration and our own anger to serve and love the person in front of us. And it's not easy. In fact, the more, the better you know the person who's standing in front of you, the harder it is for you to actually put aside your own will and pick up Christ's. Right? It's easy when it's like a, like a uh, waitress or a waiter. You don't know them. It's, 
harder when it's a coworker. It's really hard when it's a family member. Right? Are you going to put aside your will, all the baggage, all the stuff that you're carrying on, and take on Christ's will in that moment? And she's like, you think you're great? You want to boast about that? That stuff is evil. It's part of the culture that you live in, and it's evil. By the way, amazing that this was written thousands of years ago, and it's still so applicable. God's word is incredible. All right, and he finishes with verse 17. He says, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It's a really weird way to put things. He doesn't say it is sin all the time. He says, if someone knows what they should do and doesn't do it, then it is sin for them. He essentially says, the more you understand God's gospel, Jesus' gospel, the more you understand that he's calling you to submission and humility, the more you understand that you should lay aside your own pride and your own stuff, and the in those moments when you decide not to do it, that it's a willful act and it's sinful for you. That being actually like unaware of the spiritual realm and what God is doing, being a non-believer puts you in a place where you're just kind of like accidentally doing the wrong thing. But being somebody who knows the truth and then doesn't do it puts you in a different place, makes it sin for you to know that you ought to do it and don't do it. And in fact, this is a commentary on the whole last chapter which we talked about. This verse goes back and refers to the whole thing that we've been talking about for like the last three or four weeks. That in fact, when you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, that it becomes sin in your life. It becomes a willful decision to disobey what God is doing. It becomes you serving your will instead of you serving God's will. That's tough. There's a different standard for those of us who know the truth. And when we know the truth and we disobey it, it's a different standard. Right? So my kids, we clean up their room. My poor kids. They're going to be such, so messed up from all these illustrations someday. We're going to have to pay for a lot of therapy. <laughs> clean up their room. We find some candy wrappers. You know, So they're sneaking, right? They're sneaking. They're grabbing things from different places, parts of the house. Like we had some Halloween candy left over somewhere. Like somehow they went in the cabinet. They took out like a, like a, like a four-pound thing of chocolate chips. I don't know what's going on. Uh, we, we find the stuff. So we have a conversation, right? Like, hey man, you can't do this, right? Here's why. When you lie and you sneak, it breaks the relationship in our family. And guess what? When you lie and you sneak, it breaks your relationship with God. And so there was like mercy given and grace. By the way, God gives us grace and mercy. He gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. That's called grace. Mercy is he doesn't give us what we do deserve, okay? That's mercy. So I'm giving grace and mercy to my kids and saying, okay, let's, let's ask for forgiveness from us and from God. Okay, great. And then the next day when they did it again, there was no grace and mercy. <laughs> Luckily, Jesus doesn't do that to us. When you know what you ought to do and then you don't do it, that is called sin. So where are you not submitted to Christ's will? We've talked about it over the last couple of weeks. Are your words not submitted to Christ's will? Are your actions not submitted to Christ's will? Is your plans for the future not submitted to Christ's will? Are there places, areas of sin in your life that you have yet to come under the submission of Christ? Because this is what James is saying. He's saying it is sin when you know what you ought to do and then you don't do it. What's that going to look like? 
for you to fully bring yourself under the submission and authority of Jesus in every area. Let me pray.